I was just admiring Courtney's new uh, tattoo. Did you notice it? Her tap? Stick up your arm, Courtney. It's good. It's love always? Is that what it says? Oh, sing of my love always. As I was looking at it, I was thinking uh, a couple of years ago, a, a parent came to me quite upset because um, their child had come here. I won't say it was a male or a female, and had gone home uh, with a, a new piercing, and, or not a new one, the first piercing, and a new tattoo. And, and they were mad at me because I had told the student when I saw them uh, that I really liked them. <laughs> and they said I was affirming something that they didn't affirm. And I said, well, don't send your kid to Tyndale. <laughs> if you don't want a tattoo and a, and a piercing. No, I didn't quite say it that way, but I thought that. I, I thought that for just a second. I thought, oh, gosh. Anyway, has nothing to do with what I'm preaching on. It reminds me, though, too, my daughter at 16 came into my office when I was pastoring. And, and she, had, she said, Dad, I have a new navel ring. And uh, she wanted a reaction, right? At 16, she hadn't told me. And I said, let me see it. I love those. And I actually do, so. <laughs> and, and I said, let me see it. And uh, she showed it to me. And I said, wow, that's great. And she went out to my, to my assistant out in the next office, and she said, he bugs me sometimes. <laughs> and it was gone in two weeks. <laughs> it got infected, which is what I prayed for. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, it's good to be back, isn't it? What's with the front rows, though? Like, I mean, even the ones that finally had to sit here look reluctant when they get up here. But um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at 1 Peter. Uh, last week I was in Arizona. Um, <laughs> you were in the cold here. And I was golfing in Arizona. Just one morning I golfed, but the rest of the time I spent with the Evangelical Seminary Presidents of North America, uh, which is always a fascinating time uh, to be there because um, Tyndale is considered a very creative uh, partner uh, amongst all of those people. So as the Canadian kind of uh, institution, I go down there, and it's fun to have the conversations but at one point during last week, when I was in Arizona, I turned on the news, and I was assaulted with the news of the shootings in Paris, as I'm sure most of you were. And I found myself thinking, combined with that event and with all the other events, I was getting emails from friends of mine uh, who work and live in the Middle East. And I wondered, what do I pray for? on that day. I mean, you must feel this, this continuing saga of terrorism, conflicts in the Middle East, Ebola academic, uh, epidemics in Africa, saber-rattling in North Korea, hostility toward our sister Christian University, Trinity Western, from legal societies 
about starting a law, a law school, uh, police and civilians being killed in France, and a flurry of killings of innocent Nigerian civilians in two days of conflict between terrorists, all in a week. And it made me think about what I was going to speak about today. Maybe it's time. I mean, maybe it's time for people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ to regain some perspective and understanding about why we as human beings do such awful, awful, evil things to each other. But at the same time, maybe it's time to check out first within ourselves the presuppositions from which we live our own lives. Thank you for the choice of songs today. But every time I see songs like that where it says, Jesus at the center of it all, and I wonder how many of you laugh at that. Because you know it's not true in your own lives. I remember standing in a big convention speaking at this, this big conference, and they, they sang, I surrender all. And I got up, and I said, uh, really? Do you really? What we need today is to look at the way in which we live our lives, the way, the way in which our faith is supposed to be lived out. If you feel any of that, and any of that frustration, and any of those kind of angst, then you may understand what Peter is trying to do as he introduces his letter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He begins his letter addressing early Christians that are scattered through the Roman Empire, many of them suffering persecution, living in fear while at the same time trying to engage the culture in the gospel. That's one of the amazing things about the first century Christians. It wasn't just about their doctrine and where they stood. They were working that out at the same time as they were trying to engage the communities in which God had placed them. And Peter writes to them, calling them back to a perspective of faithful living in difficult times. And he calls them back to holiness. Three phases, or phrases in the first chapter set the tone. If you, if you open your Bibles or you can do your iPhone or whatever you use. Uh, three phrases in this first chapter set the tone. Verse 13, listen to this. Prepare your minds for action. I fear that sometimes we think simply an in, uh, that faith is, and Christianity is simply an intellectual exercise. Get your doctrine right, know where you stand. But that wasn't enough for Peter. He knew that who you are in Jesus is just one step in the journey of living those doctrines out. Again in verse 13, he says, Later on in the verse, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Keep your eyes on Jesus, he says. Then in verse 17, he says, live your life as strangers here. Peter understood that the values you and I are being called to, to live by, 
are going to be dissonant. They're going to be different. And we do well to remember this. When we, we seek to be relevant as the church in our culture, that sometimes we seek to be so relevant that we could lose our edge and the tension and the difference that we are as a people of God. As followers of Jesus Christ, you will always be slightly out of sync with what is going on around you. I may be one of the few Baptist pastors who reveres Oscar Romero, the bishop, or once the bishop of El Salvador, a Catholic priest, an amazing man who in the midst of a dreadful time in the history of El Salvador, as a Christian, stood up against the powers of the government around him. If you ever want to see an interesting movie, watch the movie Romero. Because here was a man who lived out his faith and fought against the powers and the oppression that was going on. And he was assassinated while he was giving mass in a service. And he wrote this. A church that suffers no persecution, but enjoys the privileges and support of the powers of this world, that church has a good reason to be afraid. But listen to this. He says, but that church is not the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to Peter unpack this perspective that he wants us to have of putting Jesus at the center. He wants us to understand that things as they are, can be very deceptive. Listen to what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Ah, that word ignorance. It appears to be such a hard word to we Canadians, huh? Because we like to be nice. But it's used by Peter to say those people who see things in one way and in truth do not want to look at other ways in which those things can be seen. They choose their ignorance. Deceived by the culture and the social values of the time, unable to see other ways that we could look at life, ways that might be more beneficial. I think that's one of the great struggles about the thing that has happened in France. It's a great response that has happened and a courageous response. But at one level, it, it needs to be emphasizing less the individual nature of freedom and more about what it means for us to be a community of freedom. Richard Hayes, the New Testament professor at Duke University, makes this interesting observation about human beings in the second millennium. How quickly, he says, we evaluate others' behaviors and how slow we are to reevaluate our own. Peter portrays this by setting up contrast between what we believe and those things that are deceptive and perishable and finite, those things that can stand the test of time and those things that don't. He says in verse 18, for instance, Economics are not everything. Silver and gold, he says, are perishable. An important message for us to hear. We who think that financial resources, that economics are the answer to all of our problems, or worse, see economics and financial gain 
as part of our self-identity and affirmation of worth. That those who see it in that way live in a fantasy world of unlimited financial possibilities. Where material, material gains are our right. We take hopeful news that our economic dreams will not be shattered as good news when it means that others may be destroyed in the process. Peter's perspective here is not anti-economics, but it's a call to values and character which form our economic policies and our dreams. He also says in verse 18 that traditions are suspect. I love that. The empty way of life handed down to you from your forebearers, he says. It's a striking statement by Peter. I mean, when you think about it, he was a convinced, conservative, orthodox Jew, proud of the traditions of his forebears. And the problem is that he has learned the hard way that they were wrong. You see that in Acts when he's fighting over the issue of food. Traditions are often passed on by well-meaning people, often as a search for deeper values. But as years go by, descendants forget that they often had deeper values informing the ways that they used, to, they used those traditions. And traditions become empty when they're substituted with the more surface behaviors that become the end in itself. We see that in trivial worship when what we do becomes more important than the way we do it and what we bring to it. Ritual becomes reality. So, one, so often I wonder if the traditions of hatred, so inbred in the traditions of nations and people, um, are just something that we have to break out of. African Americans are rightfully rising up against the racial profiling of police in the US that appears to be bred in the bone over centuries of distrust lest we feel smug in Canada. The same thing happens here. Terrorism is rampant in conflicts with radical Muslims around the world. Long centuries of distrust nurtured year after year. And all that remains of those traditions is a hatred and a repetitive violence from generation to generation. It's bred in the bone place life and meaning and hope and reality on traditions that have not stood the test of time, Peter says, and watch them create disintegration around them. The other thing he says in verse 24, if you look at it, is all their glory is like flowers of the field. They will wither and fall. Success as society sees it, is a lie. Peter knew this. He'd seen the glory of Rome. He'd seen the great forums. He knew their placed plans to build great artificial lakes and golden palaces and their idea of a perfect society. And it's almost like he is laughing at the deception of it all. And we in the 21st century have been no less arrogant 
Look at our advances technologically. Our ability to save lives and to create lives. But look and think about the ways that that has been distorted and twisted and bent. We have learned from our history that other cultures have failed, but we still believe that ours won't. Even as it deteriorates around us, ours is different, we cry. But in our arrogance, we fail to see it as painfully the same. The last thing that Peter says is that we're finite. He's actually quoting um, Isaiah 40, but if you look at verse 24, all human beings are like grass and all the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Humanity's condition has always been a question of understanding ourselves in relationship to who God is. Desperate in the dreams that are being dashed around us, we pin our hopes on some kind of little God, either a person or an ideology, a thing. And somehow we believe that that will lead us out of our confusion, our loneliness, our lostness. We feel in this desperate hope that we won't have to give up anything. But over and over again, as we put our trust in those things, they disappoint us. Over and over again, we place our trust in other gods. Who and what you fall down to worship at has always been the ultimate question. Whether or not the God you place your trust in can stand the test of time or it's temporary is your decision. But faulty, fragile values produce the content around how they were formed. My point is simple. It's as simple as Peter's is. We made this world by worshiping at the feet of false gods, and we've reaped the whirlwind. So it's no wonder that when you read this passage that Peter passionately points out that only in God in Jesus Christ and his truth will you find rest. It can stand the test of time. Listen to how Peter puts it in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your life as strangers here in reverent fear. And then he goes on. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Listen to what Peter is saying there. It's critical to this time, I believe. We are not people of fear. Please hear that. We are not people of fear, but we are people of faith, and we are people of hope. This Jesus that we have come to know is a radical and a revolutionary point of convergence that moves us 
from fear to some kind of realistic hope that engages the world that is around us with something that lasts. He pushes us out into the world and asks us to deal with it head on, with perspectives, with values that flow out of a living God, a creator who understands how life should be lived, and yet at the same time causes us to feel like strangers in a foreign land. I think Peter uses this word stranger to illustrate that we will always be people who don't feel like we really belong. And if you've lived out that radical personal nature of God in Jesus Christ faith, you will know what it feels like sometimes to feel like you're swimming against the current of our times. You will know what it feels like to sometimes look at what is going on around you, at the solutions that society has chosen, and wonder why. Some of you know that I'm on the board of a seminary in Beirut, Lebanon. It's a fascinating group. It's one of the few places where people from Muslim countries can come and actually study for ministry legally. So there are Sudanese, Algerian, Moroccan, there's all sorts of different kinds of people who are there. And one of the criteria is that they come to study and every year they have to go back into that place. It doesn't matter if it's a hostile place to them or not. The requirement is that they come and they go. And at the end of the three years, they are called to go back into that country. I, was, uh, I received some of their course syllabi for the next semester that was needing to be approved by the board. And I was struck by this course. And I know some of these people. The course title was this. Doing ministry in times of persecution. Can you imagine? I, I mean, that's the title. You should have read the, the course description. I, could, I would think all of you would sign up for that course. These are Christians who at the same time as they're taking that course and knowing that they're going back into persecution, have flung open their doors to Syrian Muslim refugees. I preached there in June in one of their churches. And there were more Muslims in the service than there were Christians because of the hospitality that has been afforded to these people. And at the same time as they are offering hospitality, they are taking a course on doing ministry in times of persecution. Peter understood this. He understood that somehow it is in Jesus that you and I are being called to center our life in. Not living from fear, but being transformed by a living God, living out of the perspectives of the Jesus who we say is at the center and loving each other from those places. Look at verse 22. The response of centering Jesus comes in, in a love that we have for other people. 
And the possibilities of that love depend on where you start from, I believe, and who and what God is in your life. Well, as you start this new semester, or for some of you in education and other places, as you continue, Carl Henry was an evangelical theologian and a leading thinker of the past century. He was a prophetic and a profound voice in his time, and he sought to speak into the liberalization of the church and Christianity in the mid-20th century. Uh, he was a valued voice for evangelicals at that time and continues to be if you ever do any reading on his material. In a PhD seminar, he was asked by a student, what's the greatest question being asked by contemporary theology today? I think the same question could be asked today. What's the greatest question being asked by contemporary theology today? And Henry didn't miss a beat. With an almost immediate response. He looked out into the group of future scholars. All of these were going to be scholars teaching in seminaries and, and universities. And he said this. It's the same question that the apostles posed to their generation. It's this. Have you met the resurrected Jesus? Do you know the risen Christ. Peter asks the same question in this passage. And I want to ask you that question as you begin this semester. Have you met the risen Jesus? You see, all else, everything else, and all the hope that comes with it, comes from that. Let's pray. We seek you, O oh God. We seek to follow the risen Christ out into the world with hope, with love, always. We seek to be your people in a hostile and a broken world. We seek to see you.